So if you want to get ready for it, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he said a lot of incredible things. He said a lot of quotable things. uh, And even John, at the end of his book, said if we were to record everything, the books of this world couldn't contain it. I mean, he said a lot of incredible things. But... From all the messages he ever preached, this is probably one of the most in-depth because he covers something like 18 different topics throughout this whole book or throughout this whole message that he preaches in Matthew 5. And so I want to take a few weeks and dig into the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message of all time. What was Jesus saying in that moment that still applies to our lives today? So we'll dig into it. And we'll start that today by looking at the Beatitudes. But let's pray. God, thank you this morning for all that you've done. God, the celebration of baptism, the celebration of you through worship, and now the celebration of you through your word. This morning, God, we ask that you speak to us as you see our struggles, our shortcomings, our desires that are not in line with yours. Lord, you see every aspect of our life. But this morning, God, we surrender all those things to you. And we ask that you speak to us. God, show us, reveal to us where we are. God, help us to go where you're calling us. This morning, God, if there's anyone here who's struggling, or maybe they haven't made that decision, God, let this be their moment in time to encounter you. We love you, and we praise you, and give you glory. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever heard a message that absolutely rocked your world? The correct answer is yes, every Sunday would be the correct response. But, uh, but over the years, I've heard messages that they just stick with you. And, and I could listen to it, and you could listen to it, and it would not mean anything to you, but it would mean something to me. But we all hear things, messages that really stick with us. And so I'm sure the crowds that have been following Jesus, and especially the ones who He delivered this message to, probably left there rocked, facing a range of emotions, going, I don't even... How do I process all this? Jesus took the authority of God and spoke to them. It is something they had never seen before. And I imagine it rocked them. It's why we call it the greatest message ever preached. It's because Jesus took his position of authority and began to speak on matters that people were scared to even touch. It's an incredible message. Speaking of messages that kind of rock your world. I don't know if you've ever heard of a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards preached it back in the late 1700s. He was pastoring a church in Massachusetts where he initially preached to that, but we don't have no records of, of how they reacted to it. But we know that as part of the Great Awakening, which was this time period, this movement of God where people were not only awakened to who God was, but they were awakened to a reality that there was an afterlife, that he went and he preached this, this message at a church in Vermont. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the message, it's posted now in book form and you can read it. And, and you may read it now and go, what impact does this have on me? But when, when he preached this message, he really woke people up to the reality of hell. And he wanted them to understand this, and I I took this quote from it. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. 
And so the message that he gave that day was the only reason that you're sitting here listening to me is because God is pleased to give you another opportunity. Well, if you know anything about this message, the reaction of people was while the, in the middle of Jonathan Edwards preaching this message, people were running to the altars and they would jump up in the middle of this message and go, what do I have to do to be saved? It was an incredible reaction. It's why we still have notes and memories of what took place there because it was such a great sermon. And as great and moving as that message was, it does not compare to what Jesus did on a mountaintop when he preached. Matthew chapter 5 begins what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus covers a wide array of topics ranging from our personal struggle with anger, our quick reaction and wrath. He talks about our place as Christians of being salt and light. He goes into divorce and other social topics. He covers a wider range of stuff. But when we examine it, we actually find that it's divided. This whole, these two chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, is actually divided into two distinctly different sections. The first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount explain the purpose of Jesus' sermon, that believers are to know true happiness. And that's going to be the focus today. The rest of his sermon deals with how happiness is possible. And so today we're going to look at what does it mean for me as a believer to know what true happiness is? And in the weeks that follow, we'll look at how we put forth that true happiness to other people. And so if you're there, turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Um, I want to caution you as we read these nine different attitudes, um, to not view them as a checklist. When we go, blessed are the poor in spirit, to go check, I'm that person. Um, This wasn't designed to be a checklist for disciples. It was designed to be how Christ is working in his disciples. Okay, so when we read this, you're not going to measure up, and that's okay. Uh, It's what he wants to do in you as his disciple. And so seeing the crowds, he went, up to, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you revile, when others revile you and and persecute you, and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus had been teaching a large group of people. If you read the preceding chapters, Jesus was doing some incredible ministry. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was doing some. um, He was doing miracles. People were bringing to him. So Jesus, as was common with him, kind of withdrew from the crowds. Uh, If you remember last week, we talked about the storm and and Jesus was asleep in the boat. and, And that's the human nature side of Jesus. He was fully God, fully man. The fully man side of him had to have moments where he escaped the crowds. Uh, If you 
have any ounce of introvert in you, you know exactly what he's facing. Whenever it's the holiday season, by the end of it, I just want to be under the covers with nobody talking, looking, or even thinking about me. And so Jesus interacts with people all day long. And so he's decided he needs to go back a little bit. But with him, he takes a select group of disciples. Now, I believe this is more than just his 12 disciples. It probably expands a little deeper than that. But he takes a select group of people when he decides to preach this message to them. How, how great is it that Matthew recorded this? But how great it would have been to be one of those selected few that got to go up there and hear this message firsthand from Jesus. On the surface, when we read these statements, I don't know about you, but it doesn't make the Christian life too appealing. I don't read through that and go, sign me up for that. So Jesus probably didn't, didn't preach it to the crowds because they weren't ready for that. And so he grabbed a select group of people. I want to point something out in that, in that what he did there is the model of what we believe Sunday school and Wednesday night service is. Where I can't express some things here because spiritually everybody's not ready for it. Because we can't discuss it. We don't have, this isn't the atmosphere to do that. And so what we do is we take a select group who choose to come and, and we take them up the mountain and they get taught one-on-one and, and they get more of an in-depth experience. And so what Jesus was doing there was he was teaching a Sunday school class really. He had pulled people aside. And, and so I, I want you to remember the importance of that because that's what we see here initially when this sermon begins is that Jesus is in, in pouring into these people the importance of being a disciple and what it means and what it costs to be a disciple. Now we have nine blessed statements here. I don't know if we call it the Beatitudes because that is to be our attitude or if it's the B for blessed attitudes. But regardless, we have labeled this to be attitudes and there's nine blessed statements. And as I said, we read these. And when you tell me that I can be poor in spirit and I should mourn and I should hunger and thirst. And when I hear those things, it doesn't instantly have an appeal to me. But what Jesus was speaking was a little deeper than that. And so we're going to look at the depth of what he was talking about. The very first statement he makes out of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I read this, I ask the question of why is a bankrupt spirit the only way to obtain heaven? Why is a bankrupt spirit the only way to obtain heaven? Because the poor in spirit realize that they cannot be spiritual or religious enough to earn God. If you want to know what it means to be poor in spirit, it means I've come to the realization that I cannot earn God. That no matter how self-reliant I am on me, no matter how self-righteous I believe I am, no matter how great I think I am, no matter how all those things stack up, the reality is I cannot do enough stuff to earn God. And when I come to that realization, I realize I'm just poor in spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, It is the understanding that you have absolutely nothing of worth to offer to God. What do I have to offer God that he can't have himself? What, a broken life? He doesn't have that. Why does he have need for that? What do I have to offer him? A man who misses the mark all the time? What worth do I bring to God? Absolutely nothing. That's what makes me bankrupt in my spirit is to realize that I can't offer him anything of value. 
Be poor in spirit is admitting that because of your sin, you are completely destitute spiritually and can do nothing to deliver yourself from a dire situation. I, um, I hate to admit this, but I don't, I didn't know how to change the tire on my vehicle recently. And I know every week you guys go, God, he's a manly man. And you're true in some regards. But in other regards, uh, so one day I was riding with my kids. It's been not quite a year ago. And I just had new tires put on. So, right, I did, thought things were good. And, and I'm getting off the exit in Bonifay, and my tire goes out. And I go, well, this sucks because I don't know what to do. And so I call for a tow truck, uh, which was I, – I tried to call my wife and get her to call on my behalf. It sounds better coming from a woman. Um, but I had to call and get a tow truck to come. And, and I remember uh, initially this, these people that are part of the state, I guess, and they drive around and they help people who are broken down. He pulls up and he's like, well, I'll help you change it. And I was like, okay. He's like, where's your jack at? And I was like, I don't have any idea. And so we begin to search my car. And I will tell you this. If you've ever been isolated and realized that you can't help yourself, you realize how helpless you really are. And in that moment, as some pitiful little child I let that man crank my tire up and get it fixed. And I thought, I am a helpless person right now. When I came to Christ, the realization I came to was how helpless I was to save myself. I had had a tire blow out of my life and I, and I found myself at the altar and I said, I can't continue to save myself because I've failed the whole time. And that's what a bankrupt, poor in spirit reality is. It's this realization that I can't save myself. I'm helpless. Every time I've tried to save myself, I've only failed and made things worse. And and so I understand that that's what's wrong in my life. Jesus is saying, no matter what your status in life, you must recognize your spiritual poverty before you can come to God in faith to receive the salvation he offers. Now, why and, and how does being poor in spirit result in the kingdom of heaven? While the phrase can be a broad meaning, the kingdom of heaven essentially just refers to salvation. Okay? It means that if I'm poor in spirit, I can finally come to realization that I need to be saved. And so the statement there is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's because I've finally reached a point where God can save me. Where I have admitted, I can't save myself he comes in and saves me. And in that moment, salvation is the kingdom of heaven that Christ is mentioning here. God offers us salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The full payment for sin's penalty. I cannot afford to pay for sin. Christ stepped in. We use the word redeem and that's exactly what it means. It's to buy back something. And God looked at us and said, you can't pay for your salvation. I'll buy it back for you. And he redeemed us through the work on the cross. I was uh, at the gas station and I'd given my wife my debit card. And and I'm one of the people that just never carries cash. There's just not a reason to do it. I actually spend it quicker if I have physical cash. And so I just never have it. What I didn't realize until I got to check out at the store was I didn't have my debit card. And, uh, I had no cash, I had nothing. I literally had no way to pay for it. Um, I pulled the pants leg up and I thought, that'll get me something and nothing, (laughs) nothing at all. And so uh, I felt like this poor beggar who was like, well, I've already filled my soda up. Can you help me out? And, And it was able to work itself out 
but on a much larger scale, Christ is saying to his followers, when you look, when, when looking at the repulsiveness of sin and we take part in that, that we realize how awful we are. Then when we look at the cross in comparison to our sins, we go, I am so poor in spirit. I can't buy that. That can only come through his sacrifice, not mine. And a poor beggar person we are. Rock bottom, Christ comes in and saves us. And when we're poor in spirit, we finally are able to receive the kingdom of heaven. So we should see how useless our efforts are and how poor in spirit we are to save ourselves. And when our spirit is bankrupt, God moves and redeems us and rewards us with the kingdom of heaven. The next blessed statement that Jesus makes is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So I don't know if this is appealing to you anymore. First, I said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now I'm saying blessed are those who mourn. If that doesn't draw you to salvation, I don't know what will, right? Two emotions that we all love to go through, poor, being broken and mourning. And so Jesus, though, is speaking on a much deeper level. Jesus was speaking on a depth that goes beyond what we initially read. Christ does not want us wailing at a wall, mourning all the time. That's not what he means to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't want to come in and all we do is cry all service long. Oh, I'm so broken. I'm so broken. That's not what it means to mourn. It's not a bereavement, which is where we mourn the loss of someone or the loss of a relationship. That's a bereavement. It's neither one of those things. What it is, is whenever we come to the realization how Awful we are as humans, we're poor in spirit, and then we begin to grieve our brokenness. I realize how sinful I really am, and it breaks my heart, and I begin to be mourning about it, and and I'm grieving that process. What it also does is it takes our personality as a Christian, and we begin to grieve what God grieves. And so... What happens is as a believer, when I see hopelessness, helplessness, when I see hurting people, it grieves my heart and causes me to mourn because my heart is that of the heart of God. Because I pursue him and I say, God, change my heart to what your heart desires. And what I start to realize is I begin to mourn the things that he mourns. It's why we can watch a tragedy that happens on TV and most people go, that's just life. And we look at it and go, that was lives that was lost. And we struggle with that and we begin to mourn it. We grieve over the things that God grieves. Our souls mourn the debauchery in our communities, in our world. Um, This does not lead us, though, to a life of constant sorrow. It does not mean that we come in every Sunday and we sit in the chair and we go, I'm just so sad. I'm sad at how broken I am. I'm such a horrible person. God doesn't want us to waller in our self-pity. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In my mourning, I begin to realize how dependent I am upon God. When I mourn the sin in my life, what I find is God comes in and he comforts me. And when I mourn the sin in my life, I see the completed work on the cross and it comforts me. And so God wants us to be sensitive to the things that we do wrong in our life. He wants us to be sensitive to all the shortcomings we have. But he doesn't want us to be 
uh, a life of misery, wallowing in self-pity. What He wants from us is to see how horrible we are and then look at Him and go, but man, I'm so happy. My joy comes from God because He's the one who makes me who I am. Blessed are those who mourn. For God comes in and comforts them. As I, may, as, as I mourn for what is being faced, I have joy today because God has comforted me. I look to the cross. I see the completed work of Christ. And I'm comforted that He can still save souls. He can still save communities. And He can still bring hope. And your sins should absolutely sadden you. But God's great grace comforts you and springs forth joy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When I hear or read the word meek, I automatically exchange that with weak. How many of you do that? Blessed are the weak is how I read it. And I go, well, what is blessed about being weak? I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be a pushover. I don't want those things to kind of attach to me. And this is blessed the way I read it. Blessed are the weak for they shall inherit the earth. And I think... Who has ever inherited anything that's been a weak person? They get ran over. They're the ones that don't get the promotion at the job because they're not willing to fight for it. They're the ones that don't win elections because they don't fight for it. They're the ones that don't win relationships because they don't fight for it. Weak people, in my eyes, are not the ones who inherit the earth. But Christ wasn't talking about meekness as weakness. He was talking about meekness as humility. Meekness as humility is the restraint to react when your flesh wants to react, right? Now, that's what makes you meek, what makes people sometimes perceive you as weak. It's when somebody says something off color to us, my flesh wants to react. The humility inside of me says, God bless them. Bless them with a 10-pound bag of something upside their head. It's what we say. It's not what we mean, though. But we say, God, bless them. It's not weakness. It's meekness. It's not weakness. It's meekness. When I was in Germany, and your translation may say gentleness, right? It's all, it all kind of exchanges together. When I was in Germany, I had two really close friends. One of them was my roommate. And he was a very large man. He was 6'5". He's just a huge guy. And he was my roommate. He and I got along great. And then the other friend that we hung out with was this other massive guy who was 6'10". If you can imagine, I felt like a child walking around with him. But let me tell you what else I felt. I felt protected. You know, I felt like the, the little brother who had a big brother was like, you see, I'm going to get my brother if you keep acting up. You know, it was, it was a comforting feeling to walk around with them. What, what was incredible about both of them was that though they had the strength to resolve a lot of situations, they were gentle enough to withhold that and react in an appropriate way. If somebody said something to them, they were big enough to handle themselves. But the true sign of a man is when he can have the strength to not react that way. If you want to see the greatest example of it all time, look no further than Jesus on the cross. That's what meekness is. That he hung on a cross, though he had every right and all power to take himself off the cross, to strike dead everyone who even laughed at him. He went through the process because it had a greater purpose. And meekness for us as Christians is that we're slow to anger. 
we're quick to listen, we're quick to forgive, we're quick to offer mercy, and that we don't react in ways that make us a scary person to be around. Some people perceive it as weakness. What it is in our lives is meekness. Christ was that great example. And for those who are meek, what we find, those who have the restraint, those who have the gentleness, those who have the humility, will inherit the kingdom or will inherit the earth. Does that mean that I'm going to be a world leader if I'm a meek person? No. What it means is that I inherit the earth in eternity. When we read, excuse me, when we read the end of the Bible, we find that Jesus comes back and sets his kingdom up on the earth. And who do we see coming back with him? Those meek Christians who were persecuted and didn't react. Those who were able to face life with a humble attitude, who were gentle in the face of adversity. We inherit the earth through our meekness because we get to come back and reign with the example of meekness who comes back in a very unmeek manner, right? And we get to come back with him. That's how we inherit the earth. It does not mean you'll be a world leader, but you will inherit God's benefits and reign with him in the end. And that's way more important than any uh, attachment of some title on our lives today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A lot of people believe that this is where the Baptist church was started. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. But it's a Baptist joke. Baptist jokes go way better in non-Baptist churches. They really do. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, these first four of these Beatitudes, uh, they're really in-depth. And what you see is kind of a common thread between all of them is that it is more of an inner thing that God is working on. Um, what you'll see out of the next five is that it's kind of more of an outward expression. So this is kind of the conclusion of something inward that God is doing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, true hunger and thirst, most of us have never experienced that. Being hungry and thirsty, every one of us has been through that. We know what that feeling is. And, 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 and if you've ever been out in the hot sun and you are thirsty... You would almost choose a cold bottle of water over a suitcase of cash. Am I right? Almost. Not, not quite. But there's nothing more satisfying than whenever you're hot to drink something cold. So when we read this, what Christ is explaining to those that are here that he's preaching to and that are going to be his disciples, he's explaining to them that they should have such an intense desire for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What he's saying is those who have an intense desire for righteousness. And we know righteousness is kind of the character of God. And in, in, in our life, we understand it as the pursuit of, of good over bad. Those are the righteous reactions. And so those who have an intense desire for good, those he will satisfy I, I love a, a good mood, I love a good food metaphor, and obviously this one offers that opportunity. But growing up, one of my mom's favorite statements was, "Don't eat junk food before dinner; you won't be hungry when it comes." Right? Do you remember that? Your mom probably said it. We say it now as parents. We're like, "Hey, don't eat that candy before you're not going to be hungry." Inevitably, as a kid, I thought to myself, "What do you mean? How can chips fill me up?" Right? That's not going to fill me up. When dinner comes, I'll still be hungry. 
And it never failed. When dinner came, I would not be hungry. But like one hour later, this intense hunger would hit you. You'd be like, now I'm hungry. Now I want to eat. And mom would be like, well, it's bedtime now. You, you can't eat. And so she starved us as kids, but we lived. And um, we, I overcame that, right? <laughs> Kicked that problem. Um, and so we would get the dinner plate. We wouldn't be hungry. Bedtime, we would be hungry. And what I, what I learned from this was what my mom was really saying is don't eat junk food. It's just going to give you a false fullness. Don't eat the chips. Don't eat the candy. Don't eat that stuff. It's going to give you a false fullness. My mother knew, and as parents now, I understand, if you eat a complete meal for dinner, it's going to satisfy you like that junk food couldn't do. See, you're blessed if your intense desire for righteousness, for God, is going to satisfy you. That's why you're blessed. My intense desires for righteousness God's going to satisfy me. Here's the problem. We can tend to have intense desires for other things. Um, Good things aren't bad unless good things become God things. Extracurriculars aren't bad unless they become God to us. Our careers aren't bad unless they become God to us. Um, hobbies, entertainment, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, they're actually good things. You need those things. But when those good things become God things to us, we begin to have the problem. And what we find is when we make these things God, we get a false satisfaction. I can stand up here every week and go, I know you love to do this, but don't put it before God. And you'll go, I know I shouldn't eat chips before dinner, but I mean, come on, it's not going to fill me up. And what you find is that it gives you this false satisfaction and you find an intense hunger later down the road when time has run out. I'm not satisfied at work unless they give me my next compliment. When I get my next compliment, I'm good. See, what, what I'm doing is finding a false satisfaction in things that I have now made a God in my life. The only true satisfaction is found through an intense desire for righteousness. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. There is no indication of anyone else. It doesn't say if you just have an intense desire, you're going to be satisfied. If your intense desire is for the things of God, he will satisfy you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Out of all these nine blessed attitudes... Um, This is probably the most self-explanatory, right? Though we deserve death and punishment, Christ exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness on the cross. Remember, Paul tells us in Corinthians, he who did not know sin became sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. So what happened is on the cross, Jesus took our sin and it hung on the cross with him. And in turn, he gave us back his righteousness. That is the greatest act of mercy you'll ever hear about. Is someone who deserved death didn't get it. That's what mercy is. And so he gave us this great act of mercy, his life for our sins. And if we are to receive mercy, then what Christ is saying, then you must be merciful people. You will not receive mercy if you don't exhibit mercy to other people. If somebody does something to you and you go, I'll never forgive them for that. Think again. 
Because I'm so glad that God didn't do that. I'll tell you this story. A guy came to me and we just started this faith-based dorm at the prison. And so a guy came to me and he said, um, hey, I I don't know that I want to be in the program. I I still struggle with smoking. And and I had heard that he had snuck into the bathroom and smoked. and, And so I talked to him and another guy was having an issue. I talked to them and and I said to them, um, I don't know where you came from, but I believe in grace. How hypocritical of it, of me, am I to kick you out of something just because you made a mistake? Because I'm so thankful that God doesn't do that to me. Because I would spend more time on the outside than I would on the inside. Merciful people are the ones who receive mercy from God. He doesn't give it to vengeful people. He doesn't give it to jealous people. He doesn't give mercy to those people. He gives mercy to us. As a matter of fact, the only way we receive God's mercy is through the work on the cross. Because we don't stand before God in our sin on judgment. All he sees is the blood of Christ cover us and he goes, his righteousness has made you whole. If that mercy has been given to me, how can I not then give mercy to other people? When you look at charitable giving and, and the work that is done, there is no comparison as to who the compassionate and mercy, merciful people are. It's Christians. They're the largest givers. I heard a thing that said like Christians adopt to a three to one relation, uh, three to one uh, in comparison to everyone else. Christians do that. It's because we're merciful people because we understand mercy. And I look at broken people and broken lives and I thank God for his grace and I thank God for his mercy because if not for grace and mercy, that would be us. If not for grace and mercy, the same man that we pass by on the interstate and go, well, he's probably just wanting to get drunk again. That could be us begging. But grace and mercy has been given and now it's expected to be put out by me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If I said, how many of you want to see God? Everybody would raise their hands. We all want to see God. It's why we pursue him the way we do. Pure in heart means clean, blameless, unstained from guilt. In Greek, the pure in heart, the word that would have been used there would have been the exact same thing you would have used to explain how something goes through the process of refining through a fire. And it became clean and it becomes unstained from blemishes. But this verse is about more than an external beauty. It's about an internal beauty. Those who are truly pure then those are those who have been declared innocent because of the work of Jesus, who are being sanctified by his refining fire and his his pruning. The purity of heart then becomes the catalyst for us to see God. The purity of our hearts, which we can't do ourselves, becomes the catalyst of how we see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Greek word translated peacemaker is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's found in Colossians 1.20, for it was, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Jesus laid down His life to make peace between God and sinners. And when we carry that message of peace to other people, we become peacemakers. So blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called the sons of God. It doesn't mean that I go around and solve people's problems. That I'm some diplomat that comes in and goes, I know you got this problem, you got this problem, let's see what we can do to bring peace to it. That's not what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker is someone who has experienced the peace of God, which has means that we're cut off from being, um, being placed into this eternal hell that we don't want to go. I understand what true peace is now. A peacemaker then goes out and it makes sure that people does that. We use a word called evangelism or, or witnessing. That's exactly what a peacemaker is. It's someone who goes out and ensures that other people can experience the same peace that we have. Those who bring the wonderful message of God's peace to the world are peacemakers. And Jesus then calls them the children of God. Last one. Blessed. Well, the last two, but we're going to do it as one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when others revile you and, per, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't think anybody woke up this morning and said, I'd love to be persecuted today. Right. As a matter of fact, one of the most off putting things as a Christian, is when people make fun of us. It's hurtful when we hear people mock the life that we live. When we talk about morality and we talk about the things that are good in life and people make fun of that, it doesn't feel good. And so it's weird to find the word blessed or the persecuted in the same sentence together because we don't see persecution as blessings. We see it as some reaction and sometimes we even view it as my inability to follow Christ closely has led to my persecution. But, but what we find is Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So in Christ, we will share in his sufferings. But the comforting part of that is to know that Christ with Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. living for God. is this acceptance that we will suffer, but Christ will comfort us. Paul, the last book he wrote, Second Timothy, before he's persecuted, before he's killed. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A man who is in prison, fixing to be killed, understands what persecution is. It's not lashing out going, I hate being a Christian because all it's done is led to persecution. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is comforted by God, but it is important to remember our greatest comfort comes when we come face to face with God. We rejoice in persecution because we know that God is working and bringing us into his eternal presence. Now, I want to conclude by saying... Going through these Beatitudes is not easy. Like I said, if you went through these and they were a checklist for you, you realize very quickly that you're missing the mark. But if you understand that this is not a checklist that I have to meet the standard of, it's what Christ is doing in me at this moment, then you become humbled that he would take the time to begin to work in you. We rejoice and what he's doing. In self-reflection we realize how far we are from the bullseye. But it offers incredible joy to see what it takes to be a disciple. 
Those who experience the first aspect of the beatitude, poor, mourn, meek, hungry, uh, hunger for righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemakers, and persecuted, will also experience the second aspect of the beatitude, the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inherit the earth, filled with mercy, and see God, called sons of God, inherit the kingdom of God. This morning, if you're here and you go, all I've ever felt was persecution. All I've ever felt was failure. I want to know what it is to be comforted. I want to know what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to have hope in my life? That's what this is. The story of the Beatitudes is, is given to us to help us understand that there is hope. I can find comfort in the midst of mourning. I can find forgiveness in the midst of suffering. And I can find some kind of help in my helpless state. The Beatitudes take our negative attitudes and transform us and we realize how blessed we really are. The fact that God has spared us for one more day to give us the chance to make things right, to find a a right relationship with him is everything we need to know today to find surrender at the cross. If you're here and you go, I don't understand everything I've been through, then can I help you understand it better? Everything you've been through has been God's guiding hand bringing you closer to him. Even though you haven't surrendered to him, even though you're fearful of what it means to have a lifestyle change, he has been slowly guiding you and welcoming you home because of his love. But that love ends. If you haven't had the attitude of what we've just read, that love ends. And you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the earth will not be yours. And you will not find comfort. And you will not find peace. You will not find those things apart from God. But he's guiding this morning. If you would bow your heads with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to give you that chance this morning. If you go, I... All I've ever felt is broken emotions. Comfort, hope, love, peace, all those things are the attributes of God. If that's you, I want to invite you forward this morning. Find a loving Savior, the same Jesus that preached this message 2,000 years ago is the same one you'll meet face to face when you surrender your life at the altar. If that's you this morning, while this music plays, I'll invite you forward. I would love to pray with you. I would love to guide you in that journey. If that's you, know the altar's open this morning.